venture into one of the fastest growing businesses on earth right now on Cannabis Economy. Converging with the brightest and best cannabis leaders and luminaries, paving the way to progress your profit margin. Capitalize and compound your cannabis portfolio now on Cannabis Economy with your host, Seth Adler. Welcome to Cannabis Economy. I'm your host, Seth Adler. Check us out on Twitter at CanEconomy. Dr. Sue Sisley was unceremoniously fired from the University of Arizona shortly after getting a study approved to examine the use of marijuana to treat PTSD in veterans. Since then, she's continued to tirelessly work on getting that study done. Dr. Michelle Ross is a neuroscientist bringing her knowledge to cannabis for reality TV fans, you might remember Michelle from Big Brother Season 2. For the record, I don't. She really knew what she was getting herself into and has used that show as a platform for doing good. So happy to be on Cannabis Radio. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Economy. So we happen to be in Colorado, and this happens to be Dr. Sue Sisley right here. Yeah, you got it. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for sitting down with us, Sue. I asked you, and, and you said it was okay for me to call you, Sue. Please do. That's much better. <laughs> but you are a doctor. I mean, you are a the, an accredited individual. You have a tremendous amount of experience. Yeah, I'm actually a legit MD, and I practice medicine every day. I see about 20 patients a day out in Scottsdale, Arizona, but I'm so grateful to be in Denver for the week because I think it was about 110 when I left Arizona. You know, what is the hang-up with PTSD in particular, do you think? I think there's a lot of opponents of medical marijuana who believe that adding any psychiatric condition to the list of qualifying conditions is going to open the floodgates and suddenly they're going to see a giant influx of patients trying to gain access to the program. But the truth is that these patients will continue to have access to marijuana whether it's legal or not. So all you're doing is forcing them onto the black market. You're forcing sick and debilitated patients to go meet people in dark parking lots and access marijuana that has not been lab tested, that we don't have any concept of what type of contaminants it might have, what the cannabinoid profiles are. So I think it's just a a very, you know, it's almost immoral to keep pushing. Here's where I'm coming from. I took an oath when I became a doctor that the AMA talks about our code of ethics all the time. And the ethical code says we will abide by the laws of this country. And if we don't agree with the laws or we believe that the current laws are detrimental to our patients, that we have a duty to change the laws. All right. So we understand that you are a legit MD, as you say, which is great. But let's go back all the way to the beginning, if you if you will, if you don't mind. You you say uh, you live in Arizona. Were you born in Arizona like a Steve Martin's King Tut? No, I was born in Ohio. I grew up for about a decade in Michigan. And then I, but I've lived in Arizona now over 30 years, so I've been there since high school and beyond, and I went to high school, undergrad at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and then medical school at the University of Arizona, where I was eventually fired from. All right, and we're going to definitely get into that, but you are a wildcat then. That's right. I'm a wildcat, hardcore, and, and I'm still proud to be an alumni of that university, despite some very you know, short-sighted administration that's currently at the top there. 
You don't hold grudges because you're a big basketball fan. <laughs> I don't hold grudges because I know that ultimately the cause of scientific freedom will prevail. And these, you know, Neanderthals that are currently running the university will be gone soon. Yeah. Well, that's the best part, I think, of this whole thing, is that people like you get to be right eventually. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I was really fortunate to have some support from Andy Weil after I got terminated. You know, Dr. Weil is on faculty at the UVA Medical School. He's the head of the Integrative Medicine Program. And when he started there, I don't know, a couple decades ago, he was actually one of my attendings, one of my teachers at the medical school. And I remember that he had a, you know, a long-term struggle with the university administration back then because his thinking was outside of the normal, you know, of the conventional realm of medicine. And so a lot of the university administrators were concerned about his work and felt that it might reflect badly on the university itself. But the good news is that he persevered and now he is, you know, a giant name in healthcare and he's doing what he wants to do. Right. And so we're, we're getting there step by step. Ohio and Michigan, let's touch on those quickly because they were before you were in, in high school. But how much do you remember? Not much. I just remember it was freezing and I'm so happy to be in the <laughs> desert now. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So good. So uh, made it out of the cold into the desert. You're in high school. What is uh, high school Sue Sisley like? Theater fanatic. I was doing a lot of performing and student government and I was really already passionate about social change, you know, uh, reforming public policy and um, and that carried on then when I went to NAU because the university in Flagstaff is very geared toward community service and community participation and social change. So it was a perfect environment for me to kind of gain my skills about how to change public policy. Okay, but the public policy was already baked in by the time, no pun intended, by the time we got to to Flagstaff. Let's talk about growing up, mom and dad at home. What were those influences like that public policy became important to you? You know, my parents were both born in Israel. They're both from Tel Aviv. They grew up in a very secular environment, and they came here, and their goal was simply to be, you know, they were extremely proud to be American citizens. It took them over 15 years to naturalize. So it was, uh, you know, very complex process. So by the time they finally gained citizenship, they were extreme, the most patriotic people I ever knew. And my mom is a physician, and she's family practice, and my dad was an engineer who was, you know, really gregarious and, you know, just a great... He ended up becoming the office manager for our... My mom and I were in practice together. We were the only mother-daughter physician team in Arizona for a long time, and my dad managed the office, and it was just a great gift to be able to drive to work with them every day, back and forth, and get have really meaningful discussions with them and so I continue to live next door to my mom who is finally retired this year at age 80 she we finally let her relax a little bit I was just really fortunate to have parents who really valued the rule of law here they wanted to be part of of the community but they didn't want to be very high profile and so this was a, a real dilemma when I started becoming involved in public policy they got very nervous because they felt that that this was this was so foreign for them but then they saw that I was you know doing something that was really important that I was trying to and then my dad got sick he got an end-stage rectal cancer and so he ended up fairly emaciated after 
about a year of, of chemo. He lost over 100 pounds. And at that point, you know, I was just starting to learn about marijuana from the veterans in my private practice who were teaching me about how they were using cannabis to manage their symptoms. And I was, of course, highly judgmental initially. I was very dismissive of their claims that this was helpful because I was trained in a super conservative medical model where you only covet FDA-approved medicine. And so I really struggled with that for years to try to find a balance with, you know, how to learn from them without embracing this idea of marijuana as medicine because I really couldn't, I was so blocked at that point and I couldn't really, you know, recognize that. Wait, wait a second. But you said you were trying to learn from them, but then not accept that those are two. Uh, how, how does that work? Those two concepts together. It was just. It was important to me to to adhere to the traditional, you know, training I had received, and I was afraid that veering from that would put me in on the fringe of medicine, which I didn't. Want. It was important to stay in the respected realm where colleagues trusted me and didn't think I was some whack job. And so, but I I became more and more intrigued by it. So I wanted to learn, but I also didn't want to veer into some, you know, alternative realm. So I started to finally listen to them and realize that their stories became more and more credible to me. There were some very conservative veterans who had never used drugs their whole life who started to tell me about their journey, you know, putting their toe in with marijuana and slowly evolving. And and many of these vets were reporting to me that they were walking away from all of their prescription meds at the VA and able to simply use this single plant as monotherapy. And I was fascinated by the notion that, you know, some of these patients with a myriad of illnesses could treat all of them with this single intervention. Time to converge listeners to our product and service supplying sponsors. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com Commercial consumption completed. Now back to Cannabis Economy 
only on CannabisRadio.com. Here's Seth Adler. So two things here. First off, you you mentioned Canada and uh, Israel, which I know to be countries, and uh, I think you referenced an international treaty. What the hell's going on there? Right, that's part of the argument. So my sponsor, MAPS, successfully sued the DEA and won, and part of the reason, you know, the judge, the DEA's own administrative law judge, told the DEA that their argument about international treaty was bogus. They said that, look, Israel and Canada all have multiple manufacturers of marijuana, all contributing to marijuana research, and no treaty has ever sanctioned these countries. The UK is the same way. There's multiple manufacturers in in England also. So it's clear that even the judge acknowledged the absurdity of this situation, but the fact was at that time we had the really pathetic director, Michelle Leonhard, who refused her own judge's recommendation and said, no, thank you, we're keeping our monopoly. And so we continue to fight against this monopoly. So we're thankful that the Obama administration ended the public health service review. That was about 20 years of fighting. You know, MAPS, my sponsor, has been battling to end these ridiculous barriers for over two decades now. So to see that redundant review finally eliminated, that was a huge relief. And the best part was that Obama didn't suffer any criticism for that. We've been watching to see if Republicans came out to attack them, and there hasn't been a, even a blip of that. So it hopefully will now pave the way for him to do the right thing when it comes to ending the NIDA monopoly, so we can finally now see marijuana research flourish. Because even though, you know, for us it wasn't, we kept focusing on ending the public health service review because even though we had already overcame that hurdle, and we spent three years fighting to get through that review. And we finally got public health service approval in March of last year. So him ending that review doesn't help us at all. But it does, we were so adamant about continuing to to eliminate that because we knew that we could never persuade other good scientists to embark in this area if they kept seeing all these barriers in front of them. So we felt it was critical to fight for the other scientists who may be willing to dive into this arena later. Right. And then the other barrier being the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, you had mentioned that there's another, there is a bill on the floor to kind of counteract that, right? That's right. The Carers Act, which was the primary sponsors were Rand Paul and Cory Booker and Gillibrand. They all courageously came together. And one of the sections deals with ending the barriers to marijuana research, and it would end the NIDA monopoly and allow DEA to license multiple growers or force DEA to do that. But sadly, that bill is now is still stuck in Judiciary Committee. Senator Grassley, the chair of Judiciary, has made it clear that he won't allow that bill to move forward. So there's a good chance that that will die. But hopefully we can resurrect at least that section about ending barriers to research. We just saw Senator Warren put out a letter just, I think, just the last week about the need to end the NIDA monopoly. And I can definitely share that with your listeners so they can see that was surprisingly unreported in the media, maybe because there were no Republicans on the letter. She had six senators co-sign and there were no conservatives on there, but but it was still a big achievement. I think it will help us. My sponsor intends to again go to battle with the DEA now, now that we have 
further proof of the, the failure of this monopoly, waiting 16 months, not having the correct strains available. All of that will be used in, in a new petition against the DEA. You know? Yeah, well, talk about research. Now you've got the research about NIDA that you can just present. That's right. <laughs> we have plenty of ammunition to prove that this monopoly is an absolute failure. And I think that it is a really an outrage to good citizens everywhere that see that NIH just handed NIDA another $68 million. Mm-hmm. They just got a new grant to perpetuate this incompetent monopoly. It's really sad that taxpayer dollars are being thrown at this when, you know, it, it's very clear that they don't know what they're doing. And So if there's a bill on the floor that's kind of stuck and it's not going to go anywhere for at least, you know, a little bit, what, what is the thing that can propel your research forward now, if anything? Well, what we've done in order, because of the sense of urgency of this study and the weight of all these veterans around the country who are begging us to get started, we've decided to accept a substandard strain of marijuana from NIDA. So instead of the 12%, 12% we requested, I think they got somewhere around 8%, 9%. And even though that's not what we wanted and it, it's not even close to what mimics the real world, that's okay. We're going to probably accept it just so we can move forward because they told us that if we don't accept that strain, that we'll have to wait another grow cycle. And we asked, how long is your grow cycle? And they refused to tell us. It's all a secret, which is part of our concern about this monopoly, that there's very little transparency about how operations are done and how they function. And so I think ultimately it's possible then if we, we accepted this lousy strain, you know, back several months ago, and we still don't have any word from them about when they'll be prepared to sell it. Hmm. So this is just a crazy kind of catch-22 we're in where we can't move forward. You know, there's so many things that are dependent upon the NIDA marijuana. We can't get the FDA to eliminate our clinical hole. There's all these things contingent on this. So we, we have to wait. But in the meantime, I think the main concern we have is that Obama administration could end the NIDA monopoly with the stroke of a pen. And that's what we're really hoping is that this letter from Elizabeth Warren and these other senators will urge both the Obama administration or the director of HHS. The Secretary Burwell and Obama could end this administratively. We don't need congressional intervention. We were just trying that route because, or, or Senate intervention, we, we were trying to go the, use the CARE bill to leverage this because we didn't see Obama taking any action. Mm-hmm. But it's possible, hopefully, he'll, he'll just, you know, be inspired to move forward on this now. Well, I mean, you've, so you've got your Senate Democrats. What about your Republican congressman? I mean, do you know Congressman Rohrbacher? We sat down with him, having him maybe draft and send a letter with a few friends on that. Right. Well, he was generous enough to write us a letter last year about ending the public health service review, and he got about 30 congressional co-signers and the HHS at that time, a year ago, rejected their request. So it was great to see Obama come through, you know, a year later and do the right thing. But I'm certain that Rohrbacher would defend this. I know we spoke to him at the NCIA meeting, and he seemed really open to going to bat for us. But the challenge is that, boy, he's got so many irons on the fire right now trying to fix so many different drug policies that I'm not sure 
I don't know if we can get his attention on this, but we'll certainly try. We have some great people. We're lucky that all these big national marijuana organizations are starting to all hire professional lobbyists. So that well, they they've always had government liaisons, but they're starting to really fortify their teams with some really excellent people who are splaying out and getting um, you know some meaningful po- policy reforms in place. So I think that we're gonna. Start seeing, you know, we've been saying for I think five years now that we're at the tipping point, and and the tipping point has really been slow, <laughs> gradual. But that, that's a pretty flat yeah. tipping point. Yeah, it's, but hopefully uh, we're starting to see. You know, the media has been such a critical ally for us. They've been putting a tremendous amount of pressure, asking great questions, and really shining a big spotlight on all of these injustices, including ours. You know, being terminated the UVA, no one would have even been aware of that if it weren't for the media putting that front and center and really shining a big light on the epidemic of veteran suicide. So that was the best thing that came out of my firing was that people started talking openly about what I believe is one of the most serious public health crises in the U.S., that we lose so many veterans a day to suicide. Many I've lost in my own practice and I'm sickened that our own government, rather than expediting a study like this that could answer questions for veterans about PTSD, instead they are doing everything they can to stonewall it. So There you go. Dr. Sue Sicily, keep on keeping on. Got it. Thank you so much. Time to converge listeners to our product and service supplying sponsors. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. shooting past a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's orders. Less heat, (laughs) more flavor. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. Commercial consumption completed. Now back to Cannabis Economy. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Here's Seth Adler.
Okay, so we are here with Dr. Michelle Ross. You've got your doctorate in neuroscience, and you were telling me some people don't believe you because you've got this this young-looking visage, right? Exactly. Usually people think I'm pranking them when I say I'm Dr. Ross. They're like, oh, what year of medical school are you? Or they even ask, you know, if I'm a college student. I'm right. like, no, actually, I got my PhD in neuroscience in 2008, which is eight years ago. Right. So, <laughs> you know. It's been it, a while. Just a little bit, right? Uh, People actually ask if I want to work in their lab underneath them. I'm like, no, honey, I'm I'm way above you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not that you're going for your master's. You have your doctorate. You've had it for eight years. What institution granted you said it's actually a mouthful to say. Yeah. So, uh, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas. That so, is quite a mouthful. Yeah. So, um, it's not one of the most you know name recognized institutions out there, but it actually had the most amount of Nobel Prize winners out of any institution at the time. I'm not sure if they still hold the record now, but it was an amazing, amazing place to learn. So, so name some names for us that we might know. Okay. Uh, so we have Thomas Sudoff, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine about three years ago, if I'm correct. Correct and synaptic plasticity. So he was in the neuroscience department. Um, there's, for, I mean, of course, I know what that is, but for anybody <laughs> that doesn't. So basically, synaptic plasticity is is sort of the process of how neurons change um, and and basically communicate signals. It's how we learn, right? So these are all really important processes. If we don't understand how brain cells talk to each other, we can't understand how any any learning or other process happens in the brain. So he cracked that code a little bit. Oh my goodness, yeah. If you read textbooks, I mean, all all the professors I learned from are, you know, in, in all of your, your neurology textbooks, neuroscience textbooks, pharmacology, you name it. And the the funny part is that when you have several Nobel Prize winners, they all attract their Nobel Prize winner buddies. So I got to eat lunch and host actually a lot of these Nobel Prize winners and to pick their brains and be inspired. It's just like sort of like eating lunch with the Dalai Lama. You're just like, well. Right, right. The Dalai Lama of this and the Dalai Lama of that. Yeah. As far as, you know, kind of quotes, quotable quotes, not necessarily <laughs> in science, but kind of life lessons from some of these Nobel Prize winners. Were there any that you remember? Well, um, I I don't have any direct quotes, but it's sort of just navigate your own path through things. A lot of people will tell you you're crazy, and the more people tell you that you're crazy and you shouldn't do it, you definitely should go do that because you're going to be the only damn person studying that and really connecting the dots. And if you have conviction and if you have intelligence, you're going to find the answers that you're looking for. We've spoken with Dr. Sue Sisley, so yes. we, you, well, she's you know got her frustrations with NIDA. Oh, yeah. What, what was it like working with NIDA for, from your perspective? Well, as long as you're studying the negative effects of drugs on the brain, I mean, it, it's, it's all great. Okay. You know, You can get all the funding in the world you want to show, okay, heroin is bad for the brain, cocaine is bad for the brain, this drug is bad for the brain, cannabinoids are bad for the brain. The second you sort of go outside the box and you start to learn things like, hey, maybe cannabinoids are actually growing brain cells, and you publish on that, you know, um, you start to get a little resistance, you know. Isn't that legislating (laughs) from the bench, as they say? Well, I mean, if you look at the whole purpose of NIDA, unfortunately, NIDA is really the only institution that's allowing people to either do clinical research with cannabis or directing sort of how cannabis and the endocannabinoid system is studied. Really, their whole purpose is drug abuse. There is no, you know... 
they don't fund medical use of, of heroin. They don't fund medical use of cocaine. Why would they fund medical use of cannabinoids? And so all their research really until very, very recently right. has been on the harmful effects of the cannabinoids. So they go, you know, you have to have done your study wrong, et cetera, <laughs> you know, uh, do it again, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So, um, in the end, we ended up, you know, we published on cannabinoids and neurogenesis back in 2006. It's easier just to go with what's accepted and what will get funded. So, you know, we went more with the cocaine research. What the hell with the reality show? What What is that about? <laughs> I'm sitting across from you. We're having a, a wonderful conversation. I know this other fact. What the hell happened there? What What is that about? <laughs> It's funny. So actually, I probably would never have done a reality show except for the fact that I was actually getting divorced. And so... So we're back in kind of Southern California. Right. No, it's funny. I was about to go through a divorce and it was just funny. One of the things where my now ex-husband was going we need to get more money. You don't make enough as a scientist because we don't make a lot as a scientist. Right. Like, you were talking about funding and exactly. grants. Exactly. Yeah. So as a postdoc, you may only make like 30000 or something, which, you know, if you live in Southern California is nothing. You're pretty much like almost, you know, homeless at, at that rate, right? Because mm-hmm. apartments there are just through the roof. So right. anyways, so he's like, you should apply for a TV show. Everyone does it here. And I was like... <laughs> okay, so I, I literally pull up Craigslist. I go search for something, and like literally the first thing that pops up is looking for like nerdy person, and it was just funny. It was like the most vaguest Craigslist description ever. And so I send in this most ridiculous email to them going like all cocky. I'm like, I'm a... I chop off rat heads for a living. I'm like this badass from New Jersey. Like totally not who I am at all. Just for the hell of it. And I get a phone call literally two hours later and find out it was for Big Brother, which was the only (laughs) reality TV show I'd ever watched in my life. And I watched it with my family. So I go, holy crap. I'm in. Let's let's see where this, you know, this train goes. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Now, now, if I remember correctly, your diary entry from second grade said brain scientist and movie star. So I, I get that we're trying to kind of push this off on the old X, but how, how much how much of this was, you know, Okay. when he suggested it, were you like, ooh? No, actually, I, w- I was pissed off that he did. So I know he was trying to apply for stuff, So oh. and he was a comedian, so I was like, I'll do it better, and I'll get on. So I did, which okay. was awful. But um, actually, I, I had been acting in high school musicals and stuff like that. So there was that. Yeah, so okay. I, I always liked the spotlight. So for yeah. me, when I found out it was an opportunity, actually, I was actually the first female scientist on reality television. So I was going, okay, um, what can I do with this? One, besides being on TV is awesome, but at the same time, it actually puts women scientists out there. Like, literally... This is a thing. Look, yeah. see, exactly. I'm like, one I'm of a the... real person, yeah, right. right? I'm not a, a caricature. I'm not like, you know, this is years later when Big Bang Theory was on. But I mean, like, when you see how they represent female scientists, I mean, right. this is not real life. I mean, we're joking about how young I look and everything, but... A lot of neuroscientists look just like me. Like, I'm yeah. actually a typical one. Right. You know, we're, because we're you're a cool person people. that looks like a person. That's why. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you go in a lab, we're not all pocket protectors. Like, <laughs> right. like <Yeah>. come on. <laughs> so to kind of showcase that was a goal. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people, you know, give me some flack about being on a reality show that's filmed 24-7 mm-hmm. and not talking about cannabis for three months on there. I didn't use cannabis at the time, and I was working for Caltech, and, right. you know, 
can't say certain things when you're trying to still like keep your job in academia. So sure. Let's kind of get to the impact network. When people talk about funding cannabis research, it's funny. If you, you ever talk about cancer research and you see the pink ribbon, right? You're mm-hmm. like, oh, let's support breast cancer. And you buy your pink ribbon stuff, you know, your pink NFL jersey. And you find out that none of the money actually went to breast cancer research. And the research that it goes to, not a dime of it goes to cannabinoid medicine research for breast cancer. And we know that cannabis is helpful for breast cancer. So the whole idea is... Why don't we help people fund research that reflects their values? If you're a cannabis-friendly patient and you want to give back and help fund research that shows, hey, cannabis is good for breast cancer, or these are the best products, or, you know, this is how long you live with cannabis versus, you know, traditional medications, well... Sorry, but the Breast Cancer Society is not going to be doing that research. Right. So that's where we stepped up, and we realized no one was fundraising for cannabis research. So if I'm listening, how can I kind of get my funds to you to make that happen? Okay. So you can go to www.theimpactnetwork.org. That tells you, you know, what we do. There's a donate page on there and ways to get involved, whether it's volunteering, whether it's attending some of our seminars here in Denver as that are live streamed as well. Dr. Michelle Ross, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. And there you have Dr. and Dr. Dr. Sue Sisley and Dr. Michelle Ross, both doing uh, great work in the space. Happy to have those big brains uh, in the industry. Thanks so much for listening to Cannabis Economy. Check us out on Twitter at CanEconomy. That's two ends and the word economy. We're pleased to be on Cannabis Radio. Again, thanks for listening. Time to converge listeners to our product and service supplying sponsors. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.